Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Stewart Foley about Citizen Cash, the political life and times of Johnny Cash, out with basic books in 2021. Michael Foley is the author of Confronting the War Machine, Draft Resistance During the Vietnam War, winner of the Scott Bills Memorial Prize from the Peace History Society, Front Porch Politics, the forgotten heyday of American activism in the 1970s and 1980s, and Dead Kennedy's Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables for the 33 and a third book series. He is a founding editor of the 60s, a journal of history, politics, and culture, and has served as a consultant for the television series Mad Men. He has taught in the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands, but now this native New Englander is currently a professor of American civilization at the Universi- Université Grenoble-Alpe. Dr. Foley, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. And I never forget, are you a Mike or a Michael? I'm generally a Mike. You know, okay. I used to be a Michael only when my parents were angry with me. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, only 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 my mom calls me Michael. And, and right, right. <laughs> All right, so we got two Mikes. Um, exactly. Um, sorry, I was gonna gonna make a dumb music pun, but I'm gonna avoid that. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, well, before we get into the book, Citizen Cash: The Political Life and Times of Johnny Cash, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, how did you come to be the historian that you are, and how do you how do you define yourself or explain yourself? Um, especially when you speak to non-historians, uh, civilians, how do you explain what you do? <laughs> Yeah, that's funny to say, how do you explain it to civilians? Um, Because I think for a long time, you know, and maybe this is true for a lot of us, when you're in graduate school, a lot of people can't figure out what it is you've decided to do with your life, you know. Um, They only recognize historians when they show up on PBS or something with the the (laughs) label historian underneath it, you know. Um, I mean, I, I... you know, the short answer is that I'm, uh, I've been doing this for a while now. Um, 
over 20 years, I guess. Uh, and I used to define myself as a social movements historian because that's how I started out. I, I came out of a program at the University of New Hampshire that was really strong in social history. And my advisor, Harvard Sitkoff, had been a, a historian of the civil rights movement. And I wrote this history of the draft resistance movement. And then I wrote, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, about a lot of social movements in the 70s and 80s. But along the way, you know, I got interested in the way that those same politics, that kind of politics of resistance showed up in popular culture. So now usually I tell people that, you know, I'm still thinking of myself as a social movements historian, but I'm also because of that interest in especially the intersection of popular music and politics. Um, you know, I write about, I write about citizenship as it shows up in the arts. I write about music as a vehicle of political expression and experience. And, you know, with the San Francisco stuff, like the Dead Kennedys book, I write about subcultures, you know, so it ends up being kind of a long answer. I'm not sure all the civilians want that, but that's, that's kind of how, it, how it's evolved, you know. <laughs> but definitely um, exploring how different uh, musical artists um, express, express politics, uh, intersect with politics. Yeah, exactly. I'm interested in, you know, the way that politics uh, can be conveyed through art and experienced by listeners, you know, if we're talking about music through art. And the truth is, I was kind of skeptical of this at first. Uh, I used to be a political organizer myself when I was teaching in New York. And I went to this one event this was because I was working on the campaign to shut down Guantanamo and the Center for Constitutional Rights put on this uh, theatrical thing where they kind of uh, performed the impeachment of George W. Bush, you know, for the crimes that had been taking place at Guantanamo. And then afterwards, they had this panel of academics and actors and actresses and stuff. And one of the academics was the psychologist, Carol Gilligan. And I forget what the question was, but she said something in response to the question that she thought that art was the most important thing in conveying the complexity of our politics to the general public. Now, here I am, a, a social movements historian, like working in a political and social movement. I thought, that's completely daft, you know? But then, as I was working on that Front Porch Politics book, you know, I realized that uh, these records that I had always been listening to and that I had always loved, like the Dead Kennedys' first record, had a song on it, like Let's Lynch the Landlord, which came from a very particular political moment, you know, in the history of San Francisco during these battles over housing and rent uh, control and things like that. And, it's and about that Diane sent me down that road, you yeah. know? And that's about Diane Feinstein's husband, correct? It, well, it may as well be, or it may as well be about Diane Feinstein herself, who was yeah. a landlord, you know, yeah. who became mayor. So, yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, so before we get into the politics of um, Johnny Cash, uh, can you say a few words on his role in the music industry and um, perhaps briefly walk us through like the main stages of his career? I mean, admittedly, you just wrote a whole book on it. So, it was <laughs> right. the whole answer, but just right. the, the main stages. And also, um, this is non-politics, but could you describe his sound? 
Um, I'm a huge Cash fan. I'm the son of a Johnny Cash fan. And when I hear that unmistakable voice and that boom chicka boom uh, guitar and drum sound, uh, I I feel something physical, like this warmth slides over me. So <laughs> tell me, <laughs> right, fully, what what am I experiencing? Like there's there's something so distinctive, and 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 how does that fit in in the the history of music history? Yeah, well, I think you're not alone. You know, lots millions of people feel the same way when they hear that boom chicka boom sound and that deep baritone voice you know and i think you know not to overstate it but you're you're hearing practically the whole of american music history you know coming out in that sound that he first um displayed or or performed in memphis in 1954 um you know he grows up in northeastern arkansas at at a place in the world where he's just enveloped by all these different kinds of musical influences, you know, what he would have called hillbilly or country music, but gospel music too, coming out of his family's, you know, church experience. And of course, African-American music, which was all around. And then especially after he moved to, to Memphis really informed his work. So then when he starts recording for Sun Records at the same time that Elvis you know, and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins are all recording there and they're getting called rockabilly. And, uh, it's, it's the dawn of rock and roll there at Sun Records in Memphis. He's, and he's not alone, but he's bringing together the influences of all these musical genres, whether he knew it or not, you know, um, in that sound, in that boom chicka boom sound. Uh, and I think that's what's special about it. And that's what you know, so many people reacted to. And Sam Phillips himself, you know, who, who founded Sun Records, he, he said, you know, these guys weren't very talented musically, but there was something in that sound that was different, you know, and I think that's, that's what it was. So, you know, to answer the other part of your question, he, you know, he, he began his career at Sun in Memphis and then became, you know, sufficiently popular that Columbia Records wooed him away in 1958. And then that's interesting too, because by the early sixties, he's, he's also adding in folk music, you know, the influence of folk music and some of the low max recordings, you know, the kind of field recordings that were so popular with the folk scene in the 1950s. Um, and all of that gets amalgamated into his sound so that by the time he gets to recording those two prison records at the end of the sixties, the Folsom record and San Quentin record, you know, he's, he's a towering figure in American popular culture uh, and in American life. And then, and then he sort of slides away a bit in the seventies. I mean, that sort of his peak is early seventies and then he sort of recedes and then has this famous comeback in the nineties. Right? Yeah, exactly. In the, in the seventies, you know, I think, what happened to him in the late sixties and seventies is he, he, he winds up becoming spreading himself too thin. You know, uh, he's got this television show, he's putting out records all the time. He's constantly touring. Um, and he did not have the time to put in as much, uh, care into the making of his own records and his own records in the seventies become more uneven. You know, he's relying on a lot of other songwriters he works with, you know, one producer after another who's trying to, you know, update his sound. And, um, 
and none of that goes really well. You know, there's a lot of great music in there, but you have to sift through it, uh, you know, a little more deliberately to find it. And right, and then he gets rediscovered, you know, if you can call it that, uh, or or redeemed or brought back from the dead by Rick Rubin and American recordings in the 90s and finds this whole new massive audience, you know, of younger people who had never listened to him, you know, because he was famous before they were even alive, you know. Right, right. And I was, you know, I, uh, to prep for this, I had the the joyful task of listening to a whole bunch of Johnny Cash all week. Um, <laughs> and, uh, was listening to early stuff. And then I went through some of the American recordings and it's really striking how many covers there are of contemporary artists that we, you know, we think of all, you know, quote, alternative artists. I mean, there's a, there's a bet cover and um, that, you know, the really amazing cover of the Trent Reznor's um, Nine Inch Nails Hurt, um, which I think Trent Reznor initially wasn't thrilled that he was going to be covering it. And then, once he heard his version said, okay, that's Johnny Cash's song now. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't quote me on that, but that was, I heard something like that. Yeah, but, that's um, pretty much right. Yeah. And there, I mean, didn't, I think the last American recordings album came out after um, Johnny Cash had passed, right? Yeah. Was, they've was, done a couple of them posthumously. Yeah. Right. And they did a box set of stuff that he had recorded, you know, all through that period that he was doing American recordings that didn't make it onto any of the records, but mm. it's called unearthed. And it has all kinds of fantastic music on it, you know, of many different genres, you know. Yeah. So what what, what do you see as the the high point of his uh, of his career music wise? Is it the late 60s? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the, it's pretty hard to argue with the success of the two prison records, yeah. you know. Um, and I think. You know, as I say in the book, you can start a, an argument between any two Cash fans by, you know, asking them which is the better prison record. But Folsom, um, Folsom. I, I say Folsom too. Yeah. Well, well, okay, you're wrong. So you got two <laughs> Cash fans that agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, those two records. He was already and ha- had been a star for a really long time, you know but he'd had a pretty uneven stretch through the mid and late sixties. And then Folsom is kind of, it's usually treated as a comeback. And I I make a case for it as a, as a culmination of all these concept albums that he did. But I think, you know, after, after those two records, you know, that's when he gets the television show. That's when he becomes this kind of fixture in American life. He's on the cover of all the magazines, you know, there's all these people writing books about him, doing documentary films about him. Um, and he becomes, you know, that he's, he's like a, an Abraham Lincoln of American popular culture, you know, at that point, um, so much that, you know, they make him the, the grand marshal of the bicentennial parade in Washington in 1976, you know, that's, that's no small thing. (laughs) Um, well, okay. So obviously musical genius, um, don't have to convince me of that, but, um, why Johnny Cash as the subject of a political history? I mean, what drew you to using this particular artist as a prism to explore American politics? Well, it was, you know, two things. One, one is that he caught my attention kind of by surprise a long time ago. In fact, uh, before he even died, um, I was working on that book about the draft resistance movement. I was kind of, you know, thinking about the Vietnam War 24 hours a day, you know, every day of the year. Um, and in 2002, Sony, 
you know, which owns Columbia Records, came out with this historic concert recording that had never been released before from Madison Square Garden of Cash and his whole show in uh, December of 1969, right? So I was a Cash fan at that point. I hadn't been my whole life, but I, I jumped on the American Recordings bandwagon, you know, with everybody else. And I was surprised the first time I listened to that uh, CD then. I didn't ha I don't think you could even buy it on vinyl, but I was listening to the CD and about 20 minutes into his performance, he starts talking about the Vietnam War from the stage to, you know, 19,000 people at Madison Square Garden. And I thought, huh, I had no idea that he was interested <laughs> in the Vietnam War, that he had anything to say about that or any political topic, you know? So, and then, you know, when I tried to find things that other people had written about him, you couldn't find too much on it either. So I just, just thought at the time, you know, this was in like 2002, 2003, I thought maybe I'd write an article about Johnny Cash and the Vietnam War, which I eventually did. It was kind of a side project that ran alongside these book projects I was working on. Um, and then that, you know, got a lot of attention because still most people didn't think of Johnny Cash as a political artist. So at that point I started to think, well, maybe I should expand on this, you know, go do something more thorough. And, you know, one thing was that the research for the article led me to the television show and the television show um, is the, is the main place where he, where he was, you know, engaging as a public citizen with political questions. And then that's, it was just like pulling on a thread at that point. I just couldn't not keep going. Yeah, I've, I mean, I, I, without dating myself, um, well, I'll date myself. I was, I was born in 67, and I've got like the vaguest, vaguest, vaguest memories of Johnny Cash being on TV. And also, I think I remember my dad, who was um, you know, staunchly opposed to the war, um, having some really ambiguous feelings about Cash at that point. I mean, Cash was around, like uh, a little incongruous. I grew up on a boat in Hawaii listening to Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and all this, <laughs> a lot of outlaw country, <laughs> but, uh, which is very tropical. Um, <laughs> that was my dad. Um, but I, I remember him being a big fan, but I also remember like a bit, a little bit of sort of, you know, confusion uh, about him, which I, you know, kind of leads me into um, my next question that um, uh, you make a point in the book about Cash's politics don't fit into these neat categories that we're used to uh, of left and right, uh, whatever that may mean in the United States or, or Democrat and Republican. You, you keep stressing that he's, he's really sort of nonpartisan or apartisan um, in his, uh, his thinking and his politics. And instead you describe Johnny Cash as having quote, a politics of empathy. Can you, can you define this for us and, 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 and sort of situate, situate him? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, you know, part of the reason that people hadn't written about his politics so deliberately before is because they, you know, had the same kind of mixed feelings or confusion like that you're describing your father having, because if you try to read him through the usual political categories, you know, liberal and conservative, left and right, that sort of thing. He comes across as contradictory. And, and this is what other uh, folks have written, you know, that he's, he's a paradox because, or he, 
or he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, you know, or something like that. And it's easy when you go back and you look at the political statements that he makes, you know, on his television show or in interviews or in the music, you know, the lyrics that he writes or statements from the stage, um, how one could reach that conclusion. But what I found was that, you know, Cash, he wasn't inconsistent to himself like the rest of us, right? We all think about politics in a way that's, you know, consistent in our own minds. We don't think of ourselves as contradictory or paradoxical normally. Um, and Cash came to political questions not on the basis of ideology or, you know, the sense that he belonged to a political party or to one political camp or another. He came to them mostly through the promptings of his own personal experience. So his way of, you know, relating to a political issue was a lot like the way he related to people. You know, he empathized with certain people who he thought were a lot like himself. Um, in some cases, he did a lot of research to learn more about the plight of some people. And then that led him to empathize with them because what of what he found out. So it wasn't always exactly his personal experience. It was that he, he decided for himself, he was going to go find out more about this subject or that subject. And on a lot of political questions, you know, he just evolved, you know, like a lot of us do, you know, he started off saying one thing or thinking one thing. And as he grew and experienced, uh, you know, had experiences that related to those issues, his attitudes changed, you know, and that's, that's true in a lot of the political questions that I take up in the book. Yeah. Um, and so the book's divided into seven chapters that are both chronological, but also topical. Um, he takes us through his life and he shows how certain phases in his, in his certain phases in his life sort of directly impacted how he evolved as a person, the historical context. Um, right. Yet each chapter keeps coming back to his television show from the, um, which aired on ABC in 1969 to 1971. Um, why did you use the Johnny Cash show, which I think many people have forgotten about? Um, why right. did you use the Johnny Cash show as the central point for this book? Well, part of the reason is that many people have forgotten about it. You know, um, you know, some of his biographers, of course, have written about it because it's it's when he's at the height of his cultural influence. You know, that's like the most obvious evidence of his cultural influence is that he's granted this television show. Um, but uh, you know, and and you can't get it now. You can't can't just go watch like all 57 episodes. Like there's no box set or anything. It's not, there are little clips you can find easily enough on YouTube of certain performances, but you can't find whole episodes, you know? So I had to go to the archives to see them. Um, and fortunately they're all preserved at the country music hall of fame. And I also saw some at the Paley center for media in both New York and LA. And you know, what was most striking to me was that practically every single week he engaged some political question or some vexing social issue on the television show. And he did it in a variety of ways. You know, sometimes he would say something in the monologue that usually ended the show. Um, 
Sometimes, most frequently, he would use the segment that appeared in most of the episodes that was called Ride This Train, which is named for one of his early concept albums, where he would take viewers, you know, on this tour of some, you know, previous era of American history and take them through the lives of usually some hardworking people, you know, but also, you know, prisoners. Uh, he did a few, couple of Ride This Train segments on Native Americans, for example. Um, and so his political views came out pretty clearly uh, in those ways. And also in, the, in some of the guests that he had on the show, some of the songs that he performed, you know, either with them or also on the same episodes. So the show is just, you know, and, and there's so much that I left out. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's so many, so many things that I left out because I couldn't fit it all in, you know, but the television show is this fantastic source of um, his public citizenship, you know, at a time when the country was really polarized. Right. Yeah. And you, you mentioned his guests and make a point in the book that um, several of his guests, uh, putting them on national television in prime time. Right. And, you know, right. let's, right. let's go back in time to uh, an era of monoculture, right. Where we have these, these, these macro cultural events or monocultural events. So, I mean, there's, there's only three channels and right. everybody's watching prime time. We don't have, we don't have, you know, cell phones in our hands watching who knows what, right? Like uh, America's watching this. So this is yeah. a, a, a platform or a stage that in some ways is sort of difficult for us to imagine in early 2022, right? I mean, this is a different historical moment. And he puts on some guests that um, push some boundaries, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, for, for example? Well, I mean, the most famous fight that he had over having guests on was ha having Pete Seeger on because, you know, Pete Seeger had been banned from other television shows earlier in the 60s because of, uh, you know, his left wing politics. Um, but Cash, you know, fought to get him on and, and, and did have him on. Um, but, you know, two of the two of the most uh kind of arresting performances in the entire run of the show for me are when he has the folk singer Odetta on, who's so clearly associated with the civil rights movement and is, um, you know, not only this powerful artist as a folk singer, but also a powerful political figure. Um, and uh, Buffy St. Marie, right. Who he has on as well. Who's, who's also, you know, basically famous or notorious in some circles for the political songs that she had recorded, you know, anti-war songs, for example, um, songs about United States betrayal of native peoples, you know, um, but yeah, you know, lots of others too, you know, Arlo Guthrie and, uh, you know, the guess who, and, uh, Stevie wonder, you know, when he was 20 years old, these were also kind of pushing the boundaries. He, he wasn't in this way. He really distinguished his show from all the other country music variety shows. It was, you know, not the Glenn Campbell show um, or the Porter Wagoner show, like Cash's show had a political edge to it. You know, maybe not every single episode and maybe it, you know, ebbed and flowed a bit, but certainly to a far greater degree than most variety shows uh, at the time. And variety shows were the bread and butter of the networks for a while there in the late 60s. Yeah, I mean, I remember those days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such an odd genre, and uh, I got some pretty fond memories of uh, a couple of those variety shows. I was, I was a big Sunny and Cher fan. 
Yeah, I, I was too. I'm a think... fan, but uh... right. <laughs> um, so um, the the book um, again it has these uh, chronological chapters, and um, the first chapter shows how um, the New Deal impacted the Cash family. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that historical context of growing up in the late thirties and forties in rural Arkansas? Sure. Yeah. He, uh, you know, Cash was born in 1932, uh, in Kingsland, Arkansas, coming up on his 90th birthday. In fact, it was in February, 1932. And, um, you know, into a really impoverished family, you know, that was just barely scraping by like a lot of people were at the height or the lowest point of the depression, that winter of 32, 33. Um, but his family, uh, benefited from uh, this New Deal program uh, that was established under the Roosevelt administration and and enacted by the, what was called the Resettlement Administration, where they took landless farmers, so basically sharecroppers, people who were the poorest of the poor, and put them in these what they called colonies, right? So they moved, cash. the Cash family moved to northeastern Arkansas to a town that didn't exist, you know, a couple of years before um, they moved there called Dyess, Arkansas, D-Y-E-S-S. Uh, it's about 45 minutes today from Memphis. And they gave them, didn't give them, they loaned them 20 acres of land, right? Uh, a mule, um, you know, provided a chicken coop, a house um, shed, right? Uh, and allowed them to work their way towards paying it all back, right? So that they could eventually take the deed of the house and the land, um, which Cash's father succeeded in doing within about three years of having moved there. So Cash used to joke, you know, to interviewers that he kind of grew up under socialism. And it wasn't really socialism because the end goal was, you know, private property and self-sufficiency, of course. But it was a government program, obviously. Right. And, uh, and it was for him a lifelong lesson, um, on the capacity of government to intervene empathetically, to intervene in the lives of ordinary Americans, uh, in the lives of the down and out. So on the one hand, he grew up still pretty poor, you know, um, and witnessed really extreme poverty all around him because everywhere outside of the colony was still inhabited by sharecroppers, you know, working for these huge planters, um, picking cotton. And on the other hand, you know, he recognized the, this capacity of the government to intervene. And later in his life, you know, and he comes back to this multiple times on the television show, for example, where he talks about poor farmers, um, but also when he talks about Native Americans and African Americans and lots of other people who are down and out still, even in the 1960s when America was comparatively, you know, incredibly prosperous. Um, so those are the kind of lessons he learned as a kid growing up uh, in the Great Depression and through the through the war years too. Yeah, yeah. The the more successful aspects of the federal government lending a helping hand, you know, the the the, the more successful progressive aspects of the new deal and, and giving that a lead to one, having a certain faith in the ability of government to help, to help people out. 
Exactly. Right? And the, exactly. And so that's that's that politics of empathy that uh, that you you describe, right? Like this this idea that we can we can band together and understand other people and give them a helping hand. Um. So the the third and fourth chapter take on um, Johnny Cash and race. Mm-hmm. Um, third chapter is about the civil rights movement. Um, uh, the fourth chapter is about um, Cash's much more well-known um, support of um, indigenous rights, Native American rights. Even though he 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 loves this cowboy aesthetic and and right. you know has a has a real affinity for the cowboy ethos. Yet at the same time, he's did a number of very public uh, and important um, moves supporting um, Native American rights. Um, that that's fairly well known, but you you argue that the, um, your discussion of his support for the civil rights movement is is something that we really haven't discussed very much in the literature. Um, so could you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean the as you say, Cash's um, you know relationship with Native peoples and his advocacy for our Native peoples is pretty well known. Um, less well-known, and, and he was even criticized for this at the time, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, he was criticized because some journalists apparently said to him, you know, they didn't understand why he would he would make common cause with Native peoples and with prisoners, but that he seemed to have little to say uh, about civil rights. And it turns out it wasn't really true, that he didn't have little to say, that, uh, but that the history is complicated, and it, it also derives from his upbringing, you know, because as you can imagine, uh, in Northeastern Arkansas at the time that he was growing up there in the thirties and forties, this was a segregated state. This is where, you know, in 1957, we have the battle over the integration of Little Rock's central high school. So he grew up, you know, among white supremacists and had racist attitudes himself, um, which he expressed in letters that were previously published, um, by his first wife in her um, memoir, when he was in the Air Force, you know, he he wrote back about these altercations that he'd had with other with black servicemen and uh, in pretty horrific, uh, racist terms, you know. So he um, carried this kind of baggage, um, but then, as I say, in his musical development, you know, the influence of African American music was really important. Living in Memphis when he got out of the air force was really important because he, you know, he had a job as a salesman where he basically could go all day and not encounter another white person. Um, and he was influenced a lot by, uh, Gus Cannon, this old country blues guitarist who he encountered just by chance and, uh, made a point of spending his days, you know, or finishing his days on the porch of Gus Cannon so they could pick and sing together, you know? Um, and that's really important because that, you know, is happening in the late fifties at the same moment that the civil rights movement is happening in places all over the South, right? Or is at least getting the kind of national attention and televised national attention that it had previously not gotten. So Cash, you know, he's he's not always steady in his evolution and there's some missteps, you know, I think. Um he records this one song on the Ride This Train album in 1960 called Boss Jack. It's a terrible, terribly tone deaf uh, decision to how to record this song that's basically like a song about slaves singing 
you know, happily about their kindly slave master, right? And this is in 1960, and he recorded it in Nashville just days after the first sit-ins at the lunch counters. Somehow, neither he nor Columbia saw fit to not release that song on that album, you know? But a couple years later, or by a couple years later, he'd been really um, completely swept up by the Alan and John Lomax recordings, and particularly this one record called Blues in the Mississippi Night, which has all these songs about, you know, chain gangs and, uh, you know, the basically racial and racist violence that takes place in the South. And it was kind of a compliment to what he had already seen as a young man growing up in the South, you know, and he gets really obsessed with doing his own kind of research and becomes, whether he knew it or not, a committed kind of social realist, you know, in his own art. And so in 1962, he comes out with this record, Blood, Sweat and Tears, which up until now, we've mostly thought was just a, his, his, his folk turn. You know, he was doing a bunch of folk songs about the working man. Well, in fact, most of the songs on that record are songs about exploited black working men, terrorized black working men, you know? Um, and some of his performances are the most harrowing versions of those songs, which are, you know, songs that came out of the folk canon that people like Odetta had lead belly you know had previously recorded and that he obviously first heard on these lomax recordings and uh i think that's the great kind of unrecognized country music record about race in the middle of the civil rights movement and, and it's curious that he didn't you know wave his hand about it and that columbia didn't say hey look here's this record about race by our country music star in the middle of the civil rights movement but it's also clear that he you know, he felt as a white Southerner that there were, you know, certain things that he couldn't be too loud about, you know, and I think in, in two ways, like one was that he felt like there were some songs like on Blues in the Mississippi Night, that Lomax recording, that he as a white guy didn't feel comfortable recording. Like it he, would, he was like, I could not, could not go that far. Right. It would be like, it would be like, you know, cultural opting or interloping. Cultural you know? Right. I mean, it, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Whereas the others, he could sing as a way to document the plight of African-Americans with whom he really empathized at this point in his life and wanted to present to his mostly white, you know, country music audience. Um, and I think that's a pretty big deal. Um, and then later, you know, as, as you say, in all the chapters, I come back to the television show uses the television show as a showcase for so many different African-American artists um, with whom he's clearly, you know, expressing, you know, not to sound too countercultural 60s-like, but he's expressing his kind of brotherhood on the television show, even calls, you know, Charlie Pride and Ray Charles and people like that brother when they, when he comes out to greet them on the stage. Um, and you'd be hard pressed to find another country music artist and certainly one of that of, of his stature, uh, engaging with the question of race at a moment when that question and the civil rights movement was really, you know, especially in the South, dividing the South, um, and, uh, dominating the politics of the country. And he, he could have just ignored it. Uh, but he, he didn't, you know? Yeah. But, but, but then again, you, you talk about some of these contradictions, you know, he, he records a song, I think it's Johnny Rebel. 
Yeah, um, Johnny he, Reb, right. He yeah. also, um, yeah, Johnny Reb, and, and he also, you know, says, well, you know, if, if you know which side I would have been on in the war. I mean, the, the Southern pride component, like even in, in, in it, some of it's so cringy in the 60s. And he's, still yeah. got, he's still got this, this empathy. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you handle that contradiction? I mean, how do you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an empathy that's running in two different directions, right? Like it's empathy for African-Americans and their, uh, the way they've been treated and mistreated for hundreds of years. And at the same time, like somehow it doesn't seem contradictory in his head to still empathize with poor white Southerners and, you know, identify with basically what, you know, we call the lost cause narrative, you know, that there's, there was this kind of honorable old South represented in some way in the Confederacy. Um, so, I mean, it's jarring because on the episode, you know, that you just quoted where he says that at the end, he, he, in the introduction to Johnny Reb, he says that he would have been on the side of the underdog, which he clearly means the Confederacy. Um, that's the same episode that he opened with Odetta, you know, and where Odetta comes out and sings these unbelievable blues songs to this all white audience who are seated in the Ryman auditorium in Nashville, right. In a, in a gallery that has a huge sign on it called the Confederate gallery because Confederate veterans had paid for it in the 1890s. So it's just like hard for us, you know, in the post George Floyd moment to fathom, how this could be possible, right? And and it wouldn't be possible today, I don't think. But at the time, in the late 1960s, um, you know, it would have been difficult to find any country artist, any white country artist of any kind who would even engage with the question of race. You know, most country artists came to the Ryman Auditorium, which is the home of the Grand Old Opry for so long, and they performed to the Confederate gallery and nobody batted an eye or said a thing because, you know, this question of race and racism is deeply implicated in country music, obviously, as it is in a lot of American music. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's confounding, but it wasn't obviously confounding to him. And for him, it's, it was possible to empathize with both, you know, constituencies um, without being contradictory in his own head. And in regards to native American issues, how did he lend his support? I mean, he, well, he, he lent, he lent his support. Similarly, he did a whole record album, you know, called bitter tears, the ballad of the American Indian. Um, and he, on the television show, he spoke about native Americans, uh, several times, each kind of progressively intensively, you know, uh, almost angrily, you know, at the way that Native Americans were still being treated. Um, and part of it goes back to, uh, you know, him growing up and being the beneficiary of government intervention as a poor, you know, a member of a poor family, is that he couldn't understand why the federal government not only wasn't intervening to help poor Native peoples, but they weren't, uh, you know, they were, they were betraying still, they were breaking treaties still, right? John F. Kennedy still signs the paperwork that makes it possible to build a dam uh, that floods the Allegheny uh, River Basin and 
part of the Seneca Nation in Western New York. And that to him was unconscionable, you know, that this could still happen. And so he, he records the song as long, it's a Peter Lafarge song, you know, as long as the grass shall grow. Um, but I think, you know, he's, he's, he relates to them. He empathizes with them as a poor American. He also, it should be said, relates to them because he believed for a long time that he was himself part Cherokee. Um, it turns out that he wasn't, but like a lot of people growing up in that part of the world, they thought they, you know, had some Indian heritage. Americans who think they're part Cherokee and really hold exactly. them. Exactly. <laughs> it's that, that, talking about cringe. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a thing that still yeah. exists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah um so you explained that his two prison albums uh recorded live at Folsom and then at um at san quentin made him a superstar and these albums are so good i mean they're they're just amazing albums um but what did they mean for cash's politics um and and what about his his less visible work with prisons and his support of prison reform um, you talk about him testifying before Congress, which was something I did not know about. Yeah, he, you know, the, I think most people who are cash fans know about the prison records, obviously, because they're, they're the, the best selling records in, in all of his work. Um, and so associate him with prisons. And some people even think that he, he'd been sent to prison at times, although he hadn't he'd done some that would nights be, in jail. That would be you know? record. Huh? <laughs> That would be Merle Haggard. That would be Merle Haggard, exactly. Merle ha- Merle Haggard, who who, who saw Cash perform uh, yeah. as a when he was still a prisoner, saw Pretty Cash perform at San Quentin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, as you say, Cash had been playing prisons since 1957. In fact, his first prison concert was in Huntsville, Texas, and uh, you know, I think what we know is that. He related to prisoners, obviously very deeply, empathized with them, had spent some time behind bars, as he said in the liner notes to the Folsom prison record, um, and had also you know, been witness to incarceration all around him growing up in the South because chain gangs were everywhere. Uh, during the war, there were German prisoners of war working in the cotton fields in nearby Wilson, Arkansas, you know, so crime and punishment. And wasn't there a Japanese internment camp? And there was, there were two Japanese American internment camps in, uh, in Arkansas. Yeah. And at a time when cash was and his brother were in the boy Scouts, you know, these, these two camps had their own boy scout 
troops as well. So he would have been aware of that, uh, I'm sure, as well. Was that so, where George Takei's family was sent? Were they in Arkansas? Do you know? I don't know if they were in Arkansas they, or not. They had. Um, they weren't in California. Uh, ah, anyway, and perhaps. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I think you know it's the it's this pre-existing interest in uh, prisoners and relating to them that's important in the lead up to the prison albums, but it's also his fascination with social realism, this kind of documentary style of the Lomaxes that he had this idea that I, I've got to record this record live in a prison and it can't, it can't just be like me performing with my whole troop, you know, to the prison population. We have to capture the sounds of the prison itself. It's like the Folsom record is really the most low max like record of all of Cash's concept albums. And it's kind of a culmination, I think, of those concept albums. And to me, you know, that that record especially is uh, fantastic because he tailored the entire set list, right? And it, we now have the full recordings of both shows that he performed that day at Folsom in uh, 1968. But uh, on, even if you just had the original vinyl, you know, you have all the sounds of the inmates, you know, hooting and hollering, the sounds of the cell doors clanging, of, of what sounds like the warden intervening and calling some of the prisoners out to go to reception and things like that. So it had this... Paul Sandoval. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it, it has this like measure of authenticity to it, you know, that would have been... It's, you know, it's difficult for us now because we're so, we've all listened to these records so often, but to have listened to them in 1968 had to have been mind-blowing because you couldn't have heard anything like that, you know, short of listening to the Lomax's recordings of, you know, prisoners like Leadbelly uh, at Angola or something like that, you know. So, yeah, I think, you know, over the years, Cash, because of all these prison concerts, his empathy only deepened, you know, his relationship to the prisoners and what he knew of their existence within prison, the inhumane um, conditions in which they endured, led him to become increasingly outspoken and led ultimately to the Tennessee Senator Bill Brock um, calling on him to come and testify before a Senate subcommittee um, on prison reform. Uh, and Cash took that really seriously. You know, he had a long piece of testimony that he had written out in advance. He read from an article that, uh, you know, was describing prison conditions and then surprised all the senators in attendance by saying that all these conditions he just read about sounded exactly like the horrific conditions of today, of 1973, um, was from an article from the 1860s, you know? So it's like a century had passed and nothing had been done. Um, and he became you know, increasingly outspoken about prison reform, also increasingly frustrated because obviously prison reform is not the direction that the United States went in uh, after 1973. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just, um, you know, the two uh, title songs, I mean, the Folsom Prison um, Blues. Right. Folsom Prison Blues. He wrote that. The prison's a metaphor, right? He wrote it when he was in the Air Force. And it's it's a little cheeky. It's a little cutesy. But... um, uh, but it's but it's but it's it's this anti-incarceration statement can be read as such. But then San Quentin, I mean, yeah. that is 
that is, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'd be too far to put him in the category of prison abolition, but that is, I mean, he's, he is condemning the carceral system and then he's singing it with such passion and force in San Quentin. Yeah, um, yeah. And the reaction of the, um, the audience, uh, these incarcerated men, I mean, it's just, there's so much electricity in that room. And what's I find so striking about those albums is just sort of like the politics of the act. Um, yeah. in these words and then his charisma, he's at, he's at, he, this is peak Johnny cash, right? This is it. Right. And, and the, the connection that you can hear on the recordings between him and his audience. I mean, it's, 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 it's just absolutely astounding. Yeah. And then, that he's, you know, he's <laughs> calling for San Quentin to be torn down. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and criticizing congressmen, you know, yeah. directly, you know, in the song and, uh, yeah, even in, in his, you know, in between song banter on both of those records, you know, characterizing the warden and the guards in not very nice terms, you know, <laughs> and joking about it with the inmates. And it's a real, like, you can feel the way that he is connecting with the, with the inmates, of course. Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of boggles my mind that a warden signed off on this. Two wardens. Yeah. 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 I mean, he played, he played so many shows. It's mind boggling that wardens ever allowed it. And, and it's definitely mind boggling that they allowed them to record it. And, and it clearly didn't have much creative control because on the San Quentin record, you know, he, he, that song that he wrote just for that performance called San Quentin, he performs it twice, right? Like who, whoever performed the same song twice in a row, you know, on even a live record. Um, and it's the most, uh, you know, powerful, as you say, and, and potent, um, song on, on the record, probably on two records. In fact, um, you know, there was lots of, lots of talk afterwards that he, he, he held the prisoners in the palm of his hand. And if he had just said break, you know, they would have had a prison riot and the whole, yeah. It, yeah. And it's hard to tell, you know, from the sound, how true or not that it was. Sure sounds like that. It sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you said earlier, the start a fight between any Johnny Cash fans by asking him which prison album. And we both said Folsom prison. Yeah. I think that's musically that's better, but yeah. in terms of the power, nothing compares to um, him singing San Quentin in San Quentin. Like from yeah. a political standpoint, that one is just wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I, I really love the Folsom record because it, he, he, you know, he doesn't come to play any of his hit songs except mm -hmm. for Folsom, Folsom Prison Blues. There's no Walk the Line, mm -hmm. you know, no Ring of Fire, nothing like that. Um, and on San Quentin, he does play those songs, and he, and he plays, and he has a Boy Named Sue, which is the hit single, you know, that uh, causes that record to outsell the Folsom record. Like I like the Folsom record because it seems so perfectly tailored to the inmates. But I agree, you know, the the introduction of, of a new song, which he did at a number of prisons, you know, he'd write songs specifically for the inmates at a particular prison, um, was a really powerful way to convey the politics of empathy. Yeah, yeah. So um, in the chapter six, you um, tell us that regarding the American war in Vietnam, uh, Cash called himself a, quote, dove with claws. Um, yeah. what, what did this mean and where did he stand on the war? Um, I mean, he, he did serve in the U S air force. 
um, right. during the uh, was it during the Korean War or just before the Korean War or just after? Yeah, during but, during the Korean War. Yep. And, and and I think chose the Air Force as a way maybe not to see combat. Um, well, we don't have any direct proof yeah, of that, but that's yeah. that's my sense of it is that you know he he enlisted in the Air Force just weeks after the North Koreans invaded, and yeah. he was you know obviously susceptible to being drafted. drafted and anybody yeah. anybody his age in his predicament would have known that if he'd been drafted, he'd have wound up yeah. in the infantry. So making enlisting in the air force was a smart choice. And then he wound up, you know, f- spending four years or not quite four years in West Germany. Do, we, do, do the United States send all of its, uh, uh, country and rock and roll stars to West Germany? Like that was the, that was the thing they did back then. Yeah. Yeah. Soviets at bay. Um, right. So, well, so how, I mean, where did he stand on the war? Um, and um, how does this fit into your, your argument about a politics of empathy? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good example of the politics of empathy in, in, in the way that it's complicated, because as you say, he's a veteran and his first instinct, you know, is to identify and relate with the men who are fighting this war for the United States. Um, and He's especially, you know, uh, torn up uh, both after, you know, there are combat deaths in, you know, in the families of friends. Like he wrote extensively after the war about the death of Jimmy Howard, who was the son of the country singer Jan Howard, who sometimes performed with the Cash Troop uh, and the songwriter Harlan Howard, um, who was killed in Vietnam and how that just tore him up you know, because he had known him since he was a little kid. And when he went to Vietnam, he went to Vietnam in January of 1969 to perform. Um, You know, he was in Saigon for, you know, shelling that came pretty close to the Long Bin base and, you know, worked himself practically, you know, to exhaustion playing show after show, sometimes for big audiences and, you know, the, enlisted men's club, but we're just walking through the, the, you know, mash units playing for single, uh, wounded, uh, GIs here and there. Um, and that really tore him up too. And, and one of the things I found in the archives was a, a GI newspaper in which he said, you know, that he, he didn't have any sympathy for the anti-war protesters and he called them a nasty name, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so at least at that point, in January of 69, he seems pretty firmly on the support our troops uh, spectrum, you know, and if not completely supportive of the war, uh, that's that's the way he sounded, right? So then a year later, uh, in January of 1970, when he's uh, starting the second season of his television show, in one of the first episodes, this is now about a month, uh, two months after Richard Nixon had given his silent majority speech, you know, and kind of divided the American public into the vocal minority and the silent majority of supporters of the war. Cash seems to come out as a member of the silent majority because he says that, you know, people are asking us about uh, the war. And we, I just want to say that our, our family here on this show supports President Nixon's plans for peace, right? So this may have been one of the things that your father was struggling to figure out about yeah. this guy, you know, and his, his outlaw country, you know, style. And then here he is supporting Nixon. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, 
he was clearly struggling himself, you know, with how to make sense of the war. And uh, on the one hand, he writes a song like Route 1, Box 144, which is pro probably a song about Jimmy Howard, or at least inspired by the death of Jimmy Howard. Um, where he talks about this, you know, good boy who grows up, you know, and ends up dying and talking about the suffering that the family endures because of his death. But then, you know, shortly after he said, uh, you know, that he supported Nixon on his show and he gets an invitation to perform at the White House, he writes this other song called What is Truth, which is the song in defense of young people questioning the war and questioning their political leaders. And even, you know, you could say it's a it's about the generation gap, questioning the older generation. So when he goes to perform at the White House in April of 1970, um, he says at the beginning of the show that this is, they're going to try to bring a little bit of the soul of the South to the, to the White House. And, you know, Nixon sitting in the front row with his wife tapping his feet, even though he wasn't known to be much of a country music <laughs> fan, you know, good taste ran, really ran good. more to <laughs> South Pacific, I think. But uh, he, uh, Cash all of a sudden brings up the war, you know, and introduces this new song called What is Truth, in which, you know, he sings these lines about, uh, you know, a, a kid who's a Sunday school teacher worrying about, you know, laying his life down the next year and things like that. We don't have any like detailed accounts of what Nixon thought, except for Dan Rather was there as a television reporter and said on the nightly news that night that the president seemed a little surprised, you know, that <laughs> <laughs> this guy he invited to the White House clearly thought of as an ally comes here and he starts talking about this god awful war, you know, and even said to the president, you know, we hope you can end the war even sooner than you think you can. Yeah. Well, that was um, no small thing. Again, I mean, I'm going to stumble on this title, but is, is it walk and talk and blues in Vietnam or. But it, uh, no, it's singing. Right. I'm going to screw <laughs> it up too. Title. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the singing in Vietnam talking blues. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think that that song, those lyrics really, really capture your argument about this politics of empathy. Um, yeah. He's there for uh, these rank and file troops that he can identify with, just like he went there for the prisoners in San Quentin, not questioning the larger issues, not questioning the structure, uh, but there to support these these individuals that he can relate to who are on the receiving end of a power uh, power structure. And then that final line where he's, you know, he's calling for peace um, right. and wants them out of there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that song was inspired by his trip to Vietnam to you know perform there, and uh, and it's on the Man in Black album, you know, that comes out towards the end of his television run. It's kind of the peak of his career at that point because he also wrote Man in Black, which also has a line about the Vietnam War. Right, each week we lose a hundred fine young men, um, and. I think you're right. Like it obviously derives from his empathy for these servicemen and for these families, you know, who he has seen have lost their sons uh, or husbands or boyfriends to the war. I mean, and this is a good point to point out as well, that there's, that this shows the kind of limits of the politics of empathy too, because he is empathizing primarily with American servicemen, right? didn't write a song about the suffering of Vietnamese civilians, mm -hmm. millions of whom are killed by American air power 
especially during the war. Um, because, you know, he's relating to it based on the promptings of his own experience, you know, and he does, it extends somewhat because it extends to the, the anti-war protesters and the calls for peace, right? Um, so he's, he's able to at least go that far. But, you know, many of the people in the anti-war movement are also protesting because they think this whole war was a crime against humanity. Right, and that what was being done to the Vietnamese people was unconscionable. Cash focuses primarily on the suffering of Americans, right, on, of American boys, um, and trying to bring the boys home. Like that's that's the message that he's got. Right, right, yeah. Um, so your last chapter of or last full chapter discusses his Christianity and how this intersects with his patriotism, and you know, upon reflection, I think. Maybe that's where my dad broke with Johnny Cash, because um, uh, Cash hangs out with Billy Graham and the right. the the I think poorly named Billy Graham Crusades. Right, right. Um, um, I, that might have been a little too much for my dad. But uh, yeah. could you tell us about this aspect of his career? And, and this this comes into fruition as we get into the seventies, right? And actually, his his Christianity led to the cancellation of the show. Well, this has long been the theory. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some evidence behind it that when he, when he started talking about his faith a little more overtly on the show, that the ratings went down, um, you know, cash, it's an interesting story because obviously he'd grown up in this fiercely religious community, but then he was a drug addict for a long time and, uh, you know, wasn't going to church and wasn't thinking much about his relationship to God. Um, but he and, and is reacquainted had a number of relationships that were maybe not, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that were healthy, not healthy. Um, and, uh, by the early seventies, you know, towards the end of the show's run, he, um, he had not only become reacquainted with his faith, but had re embraced it. And, you know, he doesn't approach Billy Graham. Billy Graham comes to him because he's this, you know, major figure in popular culture. And, and Graham's son, Franklin, apparently was a cash fan. And Graham was really interested in trying to reach young people, you know, in his crusades or revival meetings or whatever you want to call them. Um, and he thought that cash, you know, could be a figure who could do that. And so cash, as you say, became pretty closely associated with Graham and Graham was of course very closely associated with Richard Nixon. So the three of them kind of merge in a lot of people's minds. Um, but the interesting thing is that although cash was definitely an evangelical Christian, he wasn't much of an evangelist himself, never really embraced the role of trying to convince other people to, you know, save their souls by taking Jesus as their savior. Um, and in fact, instead, he practices a kind of Christianity that is more um, tied to this idea of witness, you know, mm. that, you know, the way that the Protestant church had been divided over the whole 20th century, century between premillennialists and postmillennialists, you know, the fundamentalists who wanted to save all the individual souls, the Billy Sundays, you know, who'd fill a tent every night for two weeks, saving individual souls, or... Martin Luther King Jr.'s and others who were about saving the social order, you know, 
And Cash falls more clearly into the saving the social order. You know, he he consistently throughout the 70s, after he's kind of lost the television show and he's not quite as popular, but he practices a kind of Christianity of witness, of witness to the poor, to the downtrodden, um, and calls on his fellow Christians to do something. You know, he calls for action. Uh, on behalf of these people. So don't be saving your own soul, but look out for your neighbor, you know, look out for these people. And this comes up consistently on the television show, but not so overtly as him practicing his faith. And it's totally overshadowed by Billy Graham's presence, you know, on the television show. One, One time he has Graham on the show and Graham basically gives a mini sermon, you know, and calls on all the viewing public to, to, uh, claim Christ as their savior right then while they're watching television. So you can imagine lots of people thought that Cash was on board with that project, but in fact, he's, he's, it's a much more complicated story. Yeah. Um, so in the epilogue, you're, you're somewhat dismissive of the political significance of the Rick Rubin American recordings, of yeah. the 1990s and early two thousands. Um, so but what do you think that the American recordings, which, um, you know, from a musical standpoint are really fabulous, um, right. what, what do they not capture? Well, they don't, they don't serve uh, as the kind of platform for Cash's public citizenship in the way that some of his earlier work and the television show did. You know, like Rick Rubin's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love those records and I'm a huge fan of Rick Rubin. I think you the guy's a genius. Um, and the fact that he had the vision to see that, you know, he could do these recordings, he could produce cash in the way that he did and, and make all this amazing music is a testament to that genius. Um, didn't, didn't they do them in the living room? Yeah. Yeah. That's how it started. It was like he first just cash just went out to California and sat in Rick Rubin's living room and just started strumming the guitar, just sang by himself, you know, every song he knew it's, yeah. you know, um, but the, you know, in the nineties, if, if you were thinking about Johnny Cash, if you didn't know anything about him because the American recordings era hadn't happened, your most recent memory of him might've been this guy who was the guy you were talking about, who'd show up, you know, on the occasional television special, the Christmas specials, you know, always with Billy Graham nearby, you know, was kind of this overexposed, like, I don't know, symbol of, you know, a conservative white America kind of thing, like too safe, too, you know, um, milk toast kind of America. Right. And what Rubin understood was that cash had this whole other, you know, dark outlaw side. And so his goal was to recover that and reintroduce a younger audience or introduce a younger audience to that cash. So he wasn't necessarily as interested in the cash that I've been interested in, the one from the television show era with the, who's, you know, a public citizen engaging with all of these issues um, that I find so fascinating about his role in American life in the sixties. He Ruben was just interested in bringing him back and making people pay attention to him again. And, you know, it's a good thing he did because if he hadn't, when cash died in 2003, I don't think, you know, Americans would have thought as much of him if he hadn't had that, that last chapter of his life where he again became a towering figure in American culture. He would have been 
like lots of other country stars who were famous in the sixties and then didn't do much of anything afterwards, you know? Um, so in that way, it's good because people still pay attention to Johnny Cash and there's still a lot more to learn about him, you know? Um, and part of, part of what is interesting to me, or the thing that's most interesting to me is, is this role he played as a public citizen and, and how he modeled his politics of empathy in a time of polarization, which, you know, might be useful uh, in another time of polarization. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, I'm going to, I'm going to surprise you with a question and uh, put you on the spot. Um, what, uh, what do you think is, is his most politically significant song? Or, or song two, two or three. Like what, 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 what's on the top, the top list? I mean, songs that he wrote or songs that he performed. Well, I don't know. Like recorded. Cause the, to me, the most, uh, revelatory, um, discovery, at least for me personally, in the mm -hmm. course of doing research for the book, uh, was his performance of another man done gone on the blood, mm. sweat, tears record, mm -hmm. um, which hadn't been very well known, right. Was not a song, although, you know, it had been around, we don't know how long, we don't know, you know, when it first was written. Um, and it had been recorded, uh, first by the Lomaxes when they recorded this woman, Vera Hall, um, who was from Livingston, Alabama, singing it acapella, you know, on one of their field recordings. And later, you know, others performed it like Odetta and like uh, Leon Bibb and people like that. But Cash, you know, he changes the lyrics um, to make it even more harrowing, right? The mm -hmm. song about a guy who, you know, is uh, fled from a chain gang. He was from the county farm. Um, in the original version, it, it seemed like Vera Hall was singing that the guy who obviously was a prisoner had killed someone again. You know, he killed another man, she sings. But in Odetta's version and the versions that come after, it's clear that he's the, the escaped prisoner is the guy who's been killed. And Cash sings it with the accompaniment of Anita Carter in, uh, in a way that's so chilling uh, and haunting. Um, that that's For me, that's one of the most powerful um, politically, for sure. And then, I don't know, his performance of Custer, uh, a Peter Lafarge song um, with Buffy St. Marie on the television show is really politically powerful. I think um, as they almost laugh their way through this song about the massacre of the seventh cavalry, uh, you know, in the it middle mocks, of the Vietnam the song, war the song mocks Custer, right. During the middle of the Vietnam war, like exactly. They're, they're laughing about American troops uh, being killed by a racial other. Exactly. American troops on national television, on ABC. I mean, that's, your description of that really, really struck me. Yeah. I mean, it's like Buffy St. Marie herself almost couldn't believe that they were getting to do this, you know, on <laughs> national television, that they were getting to perform, perform this song. Um, so yeah, that's really important. And I think uh, the first time he performs man in black, mm. um, you know, he, he, he wrote it in response to a question that a Vanderbilt university student had asked him about why he always wore black when he was on campus, he was filming segments for this television show that was going to be like the, the on-campus episode of the Johnny Cash okay. show. And then he brings all the students the next week to the Ryman to, to do the regular show for them. And he has all these young artists on, you know, 
Neil Young and James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt, people like that. And Cash debuts the songs. It's so new. He had just finished writing the lyrics that morning that he had to read cue cards, you know, as he sang it. But when he sings that line um, about how each week we lose a hundred fine young men and this crowd of young people uh, erupts, you know, in applause, it's hard not to get chills, you know? Um, and, and it looks like he gets chills in that moment too. Mm-hmm. His, his voice elevates, you know, he becomes, he's practically shouting by the time he gets to the end of the song. Um, and I think that's really politically potent as well. Yeah. Um, another thing that's just sort of occurred to me is, um, and you, you touch on this a bit in the book, but um, you know, that there, there's important statements on uh, uh, race, class, um, not so much on gender, right? And you, right. you, you, t- you talk in the book about one point, he's, uh, he's asked a question about women's liberation and he, and he just says something like, oh, hell, like, right. <laughs> I can't right. answer that. Right. Like, but, I mean, not, not much there, right? No. Well, not, not much because, you know, he, it's part of his uh, spiritual path, you know, as a Christian, he and June Carter kind of embody this, like, you know, typically patriarchal Christian couple, you know, um, a model married couple um, in some ways, which is, you know, amusing given the way that their relationship began when he was still married the first time. Um, And, you know, he does this record that's called Johnny Cash and His Woman, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, (laughs) now just makes us cringe i think because you know it's like he possesses this woman the way he owns a dog or a boat or something you know um at the same time though and uh i did some of this stuff that last chapter on christianity was really long first draft that i wrote and uh and some material on a on a variety of subjects had to be condensed quite a bit but one of the things he does later on is he does um in some of those albums that aren't as very aren't as well remembered in the 70s and in the 80s as he he does record some songs um by other artists mostly um that are supportive you know or more supportive of if not women's rights right like sort of uh legitimacy you know that where he's not he's not playing the patriarchal role as he normally did the most obvious of this is is uh john Prine's song unwed fathers you know which is really critical of a culture that uh condemns you know uh, a woman who gets pregnant out of wedlock but does nothing about these boys who get them pregnant you know or men who get them pregnant um so there's that and then you know the other thing i think some some people would say in his defense is that he you know on the television show, he does showcase a lot of women artists and mm-hmm. none more um, like ardently and adoringly and admiringly than Maybelle Carter, right? June Carter's mother, a member, original member of the Carter family, who he said was, you know, in terms of musical influence, the most important person in his life, more influential on him than Bob Dylan or, you know, Woody Guthrie or Chris Christopherson or anybody. Um, so there's that side to him too. But yeah, I think the, the Christian family man, you know, 
led to an acceptance of the kind of patriarchal, um, you know, relationship and system uh, that he doesn't, you know, fully ever shake loose. Yeah. And, and, and in the, the TV show, I mean, it's a product of his times and right. every young woman he introduces, he compliments their looks. I mean, Joni Mitchell, right? Right. I mean, right. Just ugh, again, cringe. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, one of the things that's always sort of troubled me is um, some of the more outlaw songs with the, um, the, some of them hinge on um, really jocular discussions of violence against women. Um, yeah. Cocaine blues. Um, um, you know, exactly. Had, you know, had to shoot this woman down. Right. And then, and then in the nineties with Rick Rubini, um, is it Delia? Yeah. Delia's uh, gone. Yeah. And, uh, and he, like, I think he defended that by saying it's not an anti-woman song. It's an anti-Delia song. Yeah. Well, pretty, okay. pretty weak defense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. But, you know, it's, this is, this is a full human being, a complex individual. And, um, yeah. Right. And a, and a product of his times, not to, yeah. which is not a defense, you know, um, I think, you know, obviously there's plenty of people who, um, had renounced, uh, obviously right, renounced violence against women and had already, you know, been critical of the genres of American music in which that was so commonly, mm. um, you know, bantered about, um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's a product of all of those traditions. And, uh, in the, you know, if he was, if it was around today, if he was doing any of that stuff today in the, in the kind of media landscape and social media landscape, we exist in today, you, you wouldn't be able to get away with it. Even a superstar <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and there would be an expectation that he would be called to account. Um, but, you know, I also think that, and as you say, in the complexity of, of humanity and of all human beings being complicated and contradictory to others. Um, the other side of it is that he was outspoken. Um, and I think earnest in trying to, you know, figure these things out for himself um, and admitted that he didn't know everything, that he only had a high school education um, and that he, uh, you know, had the willingness to figure it out or try to figure it out publicly, you know? So in that way, was kind of engaged in a conversation with himself, but also with the American people who, you know, on some of these issues are also confused and also trying to figure things out in a time of, you know, uh, rapid change, uh, cultural change, social change, political change. Um, so in that way, he's, he's a representative political artist, I think, you know, I mean, I, 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 I will confess that I'm much more uncomfortable listening to cocaine blues yeah. or Delia in January, 2022. Sure. Than I was, um, in the nineties. Right. Of course. <laughs> the, right. The, the, um, yeah, there's, there, there is a sea change. Um, so right. you, you've been really generous with your time. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I could go on for another hour or two. Yeah. So many questions, but, um, before you go, I've got two questions. Um, okay. first, um, can you recommend two books, uh, uh, for our listeners on history of music and politics? Um, 
I can. Um, although I have to say it's not, you know, there's a lot more room to, to do more work on, on the intersection of music and politics in American history. Um, and I feel like there's some genres of American music where there's, there's practically nothing, which is a shame. Um, but there's, uh, one of my favorites is an old one from, uh, like 1972 by, by Serge Denisoff, who's kind of a towering figure in the study of popular music. It's called, it's, it's an edited collection actually called the sounds of social change that he wrote, you know, in the, or he edited with all these other writers in the wake of all of this upheaval in the sixties. And that's a book that I'm always going back to. Um, and it's worth tracking down if you can find it. And then, uh, I'd say, can I say three? How about if I say three? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second one is uh, Jeffrey Ogbar's book, uh, Hip Hop Revolution. Uh -huh. I think is a fantastic book. Um, and, and that is a field of music, uh, hip hop uh, and rap that has, um, has been taken seriously, you know, mm -hmm. by historians as, as a vehicle for political expression and political experience. And then, you what know, as you know, I work on uh, one of my friends from high school, Jeff Chang, has a great oh, yeah. book called That's Can't a great Stop, book. Stop. Uh, Also a great book. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and punk too, you know, like punk has um, long been written about in England, for example, British punk as being political has always been accepted because it's so obvious, but American punk hasn't gotten too much attention as, um, as, as a, as a vessel for political mm -hmm. thought. Um, but Kevin Matson came out with a book last year called We're Not Here to Entertain. That's about mm -hmm. punk politics in uh, the Reagan era in the 1980s. And, uh, and I'd recommend that for sure. And you're being humble, but I would recommend um, your 33 and a third uh, volume on the dead Kennedy is uh, fresh fruit for rotting vegetables. You, be, you do Thanks. such a great job of putting that album, which you know I, I know by heart, in yeah. a historical context, which you know as a youth at the time, I didn't know. Right. I'm in Hawaii. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on in San Francisco. I didn't have <laughs> right. it, that national con, uh, political consciousness as a, as an early teen. Um, finally, what are you working on now and, and what can we hope to see from you next? Well, I've got a few projects, you know, in various states of incompletion. Um, I'm, I'm pretty close to finishing work on a, on a bigger book about San Francisco punk politics, actually. Awesome. Because when I was working on that little dead Kennedy's book, you know, which is those 33 and a third books, you're, you're meant to keep it to the focusing on the one album. And so they're limited in size. And I just realized there was this enormous story to tell, you know, about the politics um, of punk in a rapidly, you know, gentrifying city um, and in a very strange political era with the assassinations and mm -hmm. tax revolt uh, and stuff like that. So, there's, I've got a bigger book on that coming. And then um, I'm still thinking of myself as a social movement historian. So I've been uh, waiting on some papers to be uh, finally cleared by the Reagan library because I'm interested in uh, the politics of homelessness in the 80s um, and particularly the campaign by the Committee for um, Creative Nonviolence in Washington, D.C. to confront the Reagan administration. And then I also think I'm going to do a, another political biography um, like this one on Cash, but on Neil Young. So, oh, fantastic. Um, I think nobody, there's 
there's no good books on Neil Young. Um, so I'm going to try to write the first one. <laughs> oh, the fantastic. And, um, you mentioned, uh, cash had Neil Young on his show. And, um, did he perform a uh, needle in the damage done? He did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I watched that on YouTube and uh, I was, I was watching a whole bunch of stuff, uh, getting ready for this <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. fun, fun uh, interview to prep for. And that performance is just fantastic. Yeah. It's amazing. And it went, and you know, for a lot of those artists, it was the first time they ever had any national television exposure, you know? And then it's so interesting that Neil Young picks that song to perform, you know? Um, and then he, you know, he, because he was there in Nashville, he went into the studio and recorded while he was there, got Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor to come over and do some of the songs on the album that ends up being Harvest, you know, on some of the songs that come out on Harvest. So it's a pretty cool Johnny Cash, Neil Young connection, actually. Oh, fantastic. Well, hey, Michael Stewart Foley, thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Mike. It was a blast. Yeah. So this has been a conversation with Michael Stewart Foley about Citizen Cash, The Political Life and Times of Johnny Cash, out in 2021 with Basic Books. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.